The occasion that's brought us together this Sunday afternoon is a very special one indeed, as are all the opportunities it's ours to meet. God has truly been so good to each of us to allow us the privilege of being a member of His kingdom and, of course, to come together to adore and to honor Him and to lift high our trust and our confidence in all that He is and all that He does. And tonight we're going to study a lesson with a brief little title, God Says... And I hope that as you give thought over the next few moments with me to a lesson by that title, we shall at least be reminded of an extremely basic truth, a truth found in the Word of God. In fact, to begin that, let me turn the slide to the next particular one, and I'd like to ask you to think. I remember as a child playing a game called Simon Says. Maybe you remember playing something like that when you were young, In fact, that's just one of many games that youngsters get together, they like to play. It occupies their time, but there's an amazing biblical truth in the game Simon says. And tonight we're going to apply it in this way God says. Would you be reminded with me for a moment about the rules of the game Simon says? There's one youngster who plays the role of Simon, and this person gives instructions And so long as those instructions are preceded by the phrase Simon says, it's expected that all of those who participate will do exactly what is said in the way that is said. And if you don't, you're out. And on the other hand, if the person gives a commandment but does not precede it with the phrase Simon says, and if you do it anyway, you're still out. In other words, there's something exceedingly special and exceedingly demanded relative to that phrase Simon says. And yet the same thing is true in the Word of God, but not with the word Simon, but with the word God. And tonight, let's take a few moments not only to develop that, but to look at a few examples, most of them in the Old Testament, wherein we especially see the implication of it. What happened when you did what God said not to be done, and what happened when you did what, in fact, He had given no authorization for? In both of those ways, we'll find patterns much like the game Simon says. And so as you close that particular slide, let's go ahead and begin to make our initial application. One I've entitled, Serving God. Isn't it amazing what the simple principle of that phrase, again, Simon says is? Those who play that game immediately learn the significance of it because either way, if you do what is not preceded by Simon says, you're out. And on the other hand, If you do not do what Simon says in the way he says it, you're also out. Look at this particular slide. One of the things you and I encounter so very amazingly and also very directly is statements like these. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. The wording of Colossians 3.17. And in fact, you'll notice a moment ago, we heard the hearing of John 2 verse 5, on that occasion Jesus, together with His mother and disciples, had attended a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. And they had reached the point of having no wine, and His mother became aware of it. And she made an amazing statement, whatever He says to you, do it. They were to ask any questions. They weren't to offer their speculation or their suggestions, but rather merely to do what the Master had commanded. And of course, you and I remember how that ended. He gave orders to fill some water pots. They did it exactly as He said. And amazingly, they found plenty of wine. 
Now, isn't it true in light of that? That brings us to near the bottom of that slide. The rules then that you and I have seen relative to this necessity of doing things the way that God says, in essence, following His suggestion, leads us immediately to a number of examples. I believe each of us would be in a position to wonder, so what if I fail to do what God says? What if He has given one statement, but I do something else? Is there a penalty? In the game, Simon says, the participant's out in that case. Am I out for some reason? Does God frown upon this? Am I condemned, for example? On the other hand, if in fact Simon does say, and I fail to do it, well, what was the penalty in the Bible? This next slide will be our first example then in the Old Testament. And may I ask that we revisit Leviticus 10. The reading of the first three verses of that chapter are stunning. They are compelling in so many ways, and yet among them we encounter the following. Aaron was the initially selected high priest of Israel, and yet he had four boys, four sons, and the two oldest ones were named Nadab and Abihu. Isn't it true that these two were officiating in the priesthood? Not the high priest, mind you, but officiating in the priesthood. And yet the time came they were offering unto God. The text, though, is very clear. Now, first of all, wouldn't it be fair to say they were offering? That sounds fantastic. It sounds so good and noteworthy. Shouldn't God be pleased? But the fact is, the text says, they offered fire which He commanded them not. It's much like the pattern Simon didn't say anything here, right? In other words, in that game wherein Simon says, if you do it and Simon never said it, you're out. That's not pleasing and it's not, it's not acceptable. On this occasion, what happened to Nadab and Abihu? God didn't say to offer the fire the way they did it. Verses 2 and 3 answer like this. God was sufficiently displeased with them that fire leapt forth from the altar and they were devoured, both of them. Nadab and Abihu lost their lives that day when, on that occasion, they offered fire which He had not commanded them. Notice again, God wasn't pleased. They were out. So far, the pattern seems remarkably consistent, doesn't it? Look furthermore on that slide. The text says, and I quote, they died before the Lord. May each of us be impressed that God had said something and they chose to do something else. And when they did, that was displeasing to the God of heaven. Yahweh, in that displeasure, ultimately ended this scenario by taking their lives at that moment. There's a great lesson in that for us. Let's make an application to it. Within the pages of God's New Testament, He, for instance, has authorized, of course, the activities of worship, including the music of worship. May I ask, what then do you suppose would happen if we choose to do something He has not said? As a part of our worship, music indeed, we try to do it in a way that He has not commanded. That'd be just exactly the same as trying to do what Simon never said. We may do it all right, but just like Nadab and Abihu were out, so too would we be. For instance, those who attempt to incorporate mechanical instruments of music, no matter how sincere they may be, I have no doubt Nadab and Abihu were sincere. I have no doubt that their heart may well have been in the features concerning the offering that they were making. 
And no doubt many in Israel were aware of that which they were doing, but that did not make it right. They were out. God did not say to offer it the way they did, and that made it unacceptable. And today, Colossians 3.16 rings with a passage like this one. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. God has specified what music He wants. It is not our business to try to suggest or offer to Him what we think He'll like better. God's ways are perfect. Psalm 147 verse 5. And not only that, He has dictated what His will is, and in this matter and all others, we are content and happy to offer Him that which He's requested. You'll notice as we close that slide, that passage we just noted in Colossians 3 reminds us of a sister passage in Ephesians 5, wherein on that occasion Paul made this statement, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. The God of heaven, the one whom you and I adore, He has specified it's singing, congregational, a cappella, vocal singing is what He wants. And you and I thrill at the thought of giving that to Him, just as you and I have done tonight. This principle, so far our first example, has certainly been a noteworthy one, hasn't it? Let's try another one. This God says, example number two, may I invite you to come with me to number 16. In the heart of this chapter, we encounter the following. There were several gentlemen led by a man named Korah. And you can immediately see on the slide that Korah had a, an interesting conception, a rather interesting idea. He, together with these others, felt as if Moses and Aaron took too much on them. All of us are holy, they said. We are, in fact, just as appropriate as you are in terms of leading the congregation, in terms of drawing near unto God. You can immediately appreciate the tenor of that assertion. Korah and Dathan and Abiram and the others that were party with them were such that they felt again as if they were every bit in the same position as Moses and Aaron. And therefore, we're just as noteworthy and as holy as you are. At that point, you and I might notice this now was a tremendous decision to make. After all, the whole leadership of Israel hung in the balance here. Moses had led them out of Egypt. He had brought them to this point. Would Korah and Dathan and Abiram lead them the rest of the way? Or would God have something to say about this? It is at that point I might ask you to note this. God had already delivered His system of leadership in Israel. He had handpicked Moses, remember, at the burning bush. You go and bring my people out of Egypt. And not only that, you will in fact be the one who shall be the prophet. And not only that, I'll send your brother Aaron with you as the spokesman. God had selected the leadership in Israel. May we now ask this. So God had said one thing, and Korah and Dathan and Abiram were suggesting something different. It's like Simon says again. I wonder what happened when it was their idea to do something different than what God had affirmed. As that chapter unfolds, Numbers chapter 16, 
we easily remember that which happened. In fact, Moses, speaking on behalf of God, directly confronted them and said, Tomorrow you be present before the tabernacle and God will settle this matter. You and I remember they weren't all that thrilled about gathering. I've often suspected they feared what may well happen. And sure enough, when the congregation gathered, God clave the earth beneath their feet and they fell alive into the bosom of earth never to be heard from again. May we ask, were they out in this scenario? When God said, as they tried to offer something different, was God pleased? Did He tolerate it? Was He in moderation happy to accept it? And the answer, of course, is no. God's way is the way He, of course, not only has specified, it's all He will accept. It is in that regard then. You and I might come near the bottom of that slide and note this. The human family, I suppose, has often been in a position to wish to alter or change the matter of worship to suit himself. We could go back as far as Cain to appreciate this. When Cain and Abel brought that of which they had access in Genesis chapter 4, God was pleased with that which Abel offered, but He was not satisfied with what Cain offered. It might well again be noted, but Cain offered, didn't he? Wouldn't it be good enough just to offer something? Shouldn't God be happy with whatever I, out of sacrifice and inconvenience, choose to offer Him? And that answer is an overwhelming no. You and I insult God when we offer Him something different than what He asked. Here Korah, Dathan, and Abiram learned an unforgettable and eternal lesson. They learned you cannot tamper with what God has stated that He wants. His leadership in Israel was affirmed and it was absolute and it was not to be tampered with. It might well then be noted as we apply that same principle here, Jesus Himself declared... God's a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in truth and in spirit. John 4, 24. Isn't it true that there is, of course, mention of spirit, and hence our heart, our enthusiasm, our eagerness is within it. But it almost, in fact, it always must also be offered in a way that is truth. God's Word is truth, John 17, 17. And the psalmist of old declared it like this in Psalm 119, verse 172, I will sing of thy righteousness, for all thy commandments are righteousness. God's Word's what's right. And when it comes to specifying and detailing worship, we get excited about the thought of doing it as He has said. And no culture, no fancy, no fad will ever change. The basic matter of what is pleasing worship unto God. One last verse in Matthew 15, verses 7, 8, and 9. Jesus one more time on that occasion addressed some of His day and particularly said to them, they of course had begun to say, it is a gift, it is Corban. And they thought that excused them from making appropriate sacrificial offering to God. Jesus said, you in fact are mistaken. In vain do they worship me teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. What they were doing was corrupting worship, perverting it if you please, by taking what God commanded out and inserting what they preferred to what they wanted. And Jesus says that makes worship vain. And that word vain suggests that which is empty, that which is useless, that which is worthless. You and I are excited when we come together knowing that our worship is pleasing and acceptable to God. 
because it's offered not only with our energy and enthusiasm, but it's offered according to the truth He has revealed. These two lessons so far, God says, lead us to a third one. What else might we say? And this one is another shocking one. As we recall Moses in Numbers chapter 20. The scene was a very telling one. Moses had led the children of Israel now through some very difficult and challenging wilderness wanderings. They had already made their statement of unbelief and rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, but now they have advanced even further, but there's no water. They have arrived at a place, as it had happened before, where they were lacking the necessary water. Now, earlier God had provided them water out of a rock in the book of Exodus. And on another occasion, when they arrived at a pool of water that itself was bitter, God gave them instruction to cast a certain tree into it and it made it sweet. Our God can provide. On this occasion, though, God gave Moses these instructions. There's a rock and you take and you take your rod, but you speak to the rock. And I'll bring out water, and it'll not only provide sufficient water, it will in fact be a testimony to the greatness whereby the source of that water is known. And Moses, of course, took the rod. As he elevated himself above the people, he struck the rock not once but twice. And he said, must we fetch water out of this rock for you? And he took the glory to himself. And he directed the characteristic energy of that moment to himself rather than the actual source of God. May we pause here to make a connection. We've been considering the game, Simon says. Here's an occasion when God said one thing and Moses said something else. He struck the rock instead of just speaking. He did something God did not say. Question, was God pleased? Was he happy? Did he tolerate it? We each remember what the next two verses brought about. It was something that would haunt Moses the rest of his life. God said, because you didn't fear me before the people, because you didn't profess belief in me, you will not be allowed to enter the promised land. But here was this great leader, Moses, who in fact for so long had considered their challenges, dealt with their complaints, And through it all, he had exemplified such faith and courage, and yet on this occasion, he did what God said not to do. And God said, you will not be allowed to enter Canaan. On that point, at least, Moses, you're out. One more time, the parallels to that little game that you and I remember playing as a child seem so clear. Let's note one more thing. You and I can consider a number of additional points of application of that. And at the bottom, I've asked you to note this. Perhaps for the last 35 years, there has been an increasing challenge to the system of New Testament presentation. Are we allowed to have female elders? There are churches all across the nation wrestling with thoughts like this. What about a woman preacher? We are not against women. In fact, we appreciate the talents God has given to females. But our question must be this. Has God authorized a female as a preacher? In 1 Timothy 2.11, God says, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. In 1 Corinthians 14.34, it is a shame for women to speak in public. 
in the context now of public proclamation, preaching and discourses. And thus, as you and I simply ask, what has God said? He's made it rather plain. And you and I cling to and hold to that because it's His will. Though men may question and though men may often seemingly have what they think are better ideas, you and I will just simply be content with God's says. As you can come to the bottom of that slide with me, Moses again so often was regretful. In fact, on more than one occasion, he pleaded with God that he might enter the promised land, but God didn't change his mind. And Moses died without ever entering it. Admittedly, he was permitted to see it as he climbed the lofty heights of Mount Pisgah and looked over into it, but he died there on the mountain, never having set foot in it. Isn't that something to recollect? Isn't that something to keep in mind? God says what He means, and He means what He says. What about lesson number four? Another example taken from the days of the Old Testament. May we come to the book of Second Chronicles. In Second Chronicles, we have set before us a very interesting record. So often the kings of Judah were those men who themselves, some of them were evil and some of them were good. You and I can probably name many of the good ones, those like Josiah and Hezekiah and some others. But when we come to Uzziah, we encounter the following comments. Uzziah was the king. He was a man who, of course, had some appreciation and knowledge. He was of the seed of David. And therefore... There was a great deal of connection in fairness to a notable standing on, on the part of this man. And yet the time came in his life when he arrogantly and presumptuously lifted himself up. In fact, he went into the tabernacle, I should say temple really, and he offered sacrifice to God. Now may I say, at first sight, doesn't that sound great? A king who would have his heart in the position to offer unto God, but yet... You and I remember beneath the law of Moses, God had specified who was authorized to offer. It were the priest. It was only of the Levite tribe. And yet here was Uzziah who was of the seed of Judah. He was not of the Levite tribe. And yet he went headstrong into the temple, proceeded to offer. And oddly enough, the actual priests, it seems from the text, they were actually saying, you don't want to do this. You aren't authorized. Please let us do it. And Uzziah would have none of it. He did it. May I ask again, what does that indicate? God had said, of course, for the Levites to offer. Here was a man who did something different. God didn't say. Was God pleased? Was He happy? Did God tolerate them, this man asserting that his heart at least was in a good place? The ending of that record is another very memorable event. God struck Uzziah with leprosy. He was a leper the rest of his life. He died a leper. And you and I remember what the sentence of leprosy brought. It was a circumstance wherein it was looked upon in an exceedingly harsh and challenging way. And yet God brought as a judgment upon this man the matter of leprosy. Isn't it easy to see? Just like Simon says, when Uzziah did something different, he was out. Let's make an application in this way. 
the plan of salvation that you and I cherish so dearly. Because we're so thankful that we can know what has to be done in order for you and I to enjoy remission of sins. And yet the human family has in so many ways taken different approaches. How often have perhaps in department stores or in other places you find a little pamphlet or a tract and in it, it asks you some good questions about are you saved or not? And if you're not, it says, pray this prayer. Invite God, Jesus, into your heart and rest assured you're saved. May I ask, name one verse in the Bible, just one, wherein that's what was told to anybody who was looking to become saved. There isn't a single verse anywhere. There's no authority for that. At this point, might you and I say, as we peruse the book of Acts, and as we look at the things our Savior taught in the four gospel accounts, Aren't we reminded that we have explicit examples of what they did on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, what they did in the city of Corinth, Acts 18, what the Philippian jailer did, Acts 16, what the Ethiopian eunuch did, Acts 8, what was happening in terms of Paul's journey on the road to Damascus, Acts 9, what happened at Cornelius' household in Acts 10, and we could go on even further, but isn't that enough? All of these examples, and if we do today what they did then, we'll become today what they became then, simple New Testament Christians. We dare not tamper with the plan of salvation. God has given to us in His Word what must be done. And as you and I reflect upon that, if we change it, just like the game Simon says, we're out. We shouldn't expect to be saved. On that day of judgment when the books are open, Revelation 20 verse 11. And of course, one of the books shall be the Holy Bible because in it, it's the standard by which your life and mine should be judged. And when Jesus says, but I told you what you needed to do. I even gave you examples, ten of them in the book of Acts. I'm sure there'll be a lot of speechlessness on that occasion because what else can you say? Jesus says, I told you. I gave you the instruction. All I ask you to do is submissively and earnestly and honestly do it. At this point, as you and I close the study of Isaiah, let's look at one more. Example number five. This one will be our last negative one. And then we're going to turn to things more positive. So far, every one of these ones we've considered have been circumstances in which someone directly chose not to do what God did say or they did what God did not say, one or the other. And in every case, they were out. They were eliminated just like the game Simon says. Let's consider one more. What about Saul? In 1 Samuel 15, the God of heaven by that point had given King Saul, the first king of Israel, a very directed commandment. You go to the Amalekites and utterly destroy them. Men, women, animals, boys, girls, you name it. Destroy all of them. And it seems as if Saul was a bit excited about the thought of the challenge and off he went with the armies of Israel. And when he came... He almost complied, but to almost comply is to sin and failure, isn't it? 
In fact, you and I remember that Saul not only kept the king alive, King Agag, he also saved many of the animals, perhaps with the thought of offering them a sacrifice to God. That seems noble. It seems worthwhile. But the fact is, it's abject disobedience. He did not do what God said for him to do. And of course, as Samuel was commissioned by God to come and speak to Saul, it was Saul who pointed out and would not be persuaded, you didn't do what God said for you to do. Aren't we back to the same scenario again? God said Saul did something different. Did God tolerate it or was he out? The scenario continues like this. In the conversation that Saul had with Samuel, at first, Saul rather, de- rather demandingly said, but I did do what God said. In fact, he said it twice. But Samuel, of course, responded, well, what then is this king doing here? What are these animals that I'm hearing if you did what God said? And ultimately, in verse 21, Saul said, I've played the fool. I did not do what God said. However, by that point, the sentence that God had delivered was this, the kingdom's going to be rent from you, Saul, and be given to one better than you. And Saul never had a dynasty in Israel. Haven't you often reflected upon that? Most of the time, the kings in Israel were such that his son would reign, and then his son would reign, and his son would reign, and it continued on down the line that way. But Saul, his son, never reigned as king over Israel. Now, it is true that one of his sons, Ishbosheth, did reign for a short time, but it was never over all of Israel. Because ultimately David would enter the picture, and by the providence of God, David was to be the next leader. God took the kingdom from Saul. Saul was out. So far in all five occasions, the game Simon says has reminded us of the powerful biblical principle that God says. And as I mentioned a moment ago, let's end on a happier note. What about Noah? As you and I revisit the early stages in the Bible, we encounter a man named Noah. And of course, the earth was wicked at the time, and men's heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6 verse 5. And yet it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6 8. Noah was a perfect man, just in his generations, And these thoughts are brought before you at this moment. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. So did he. You see, Noah did exactly what God said, the way that he said it. And Noah was pleasing unto God. That ark was built the way. It was built with gopher wood, just like God said. It had three stories, just like God said. It was pitched within and without, like God said. It had one door, like God said. You see, Noah didn't try to insert, suggest, modify, alter, or change, substitute or replace what God had said. And therefore, he was the victor. He was the triumphant one. Whatever he saith unto you do it, John 2 verse 5. One by one, as you and I have considered all of these, let's close that slide with a slogan. A slogan that you and I perhaps have so often noted. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. To read Hebrews 5 verses 8 and 9. 
and later in Revelation 22, the very last chapter, quite likely the last page in the Bible, in your, in your Bible. One last time. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Do you want to participate in everlasting life? Do you want to enter in through the gates and enter the pearly place of heaven? That requires doing His commandments. Not substitution, but rather God says. As we close our lesson this evening, this summary slide, this summary page, is my attempt to simply rehearse some of the features of our lesson. It's true, Simon says, is a fun game for children to play. But when it comes to what we've studied tonight, it's not a game. It's eternally significant. It is eternally important. And in fact, souls hang in the balance. You and I, as we've studied about Moses and Korah and Uzziah and Saul... Haven't we learned that even in the case of Nadab and Abihu, all of those were negative. They tried to substitute in one way or another to do what God hadn't commanded, and they all were out. But when Noah did what God said and obeyed following those instructions, not only was he blessed, he is lifted high in the Word of God as a timeless example of faithfulness. Where do you and I fit into that tonight? Are you and I following what God says? It's our prayer that the church worldwide would always remain steadfast and strong and true, but your commitment and mine as individuals will shall ever be to do what God says. Tonight, if there's someone in this audience who has not done what God says, maybe you have perhaps begun to move in a direction in life wherein something that others are saying has become more important and more pressing than what God says. If you've never become a Christian, you need to remedy that tonight. If you've reached an age of knowing wrong from right, appreciative of the fact Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, and you know these simple elements, you've got to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins, Luke 13, 5. You must confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, and then to be baptized in water for the remission of sins. If we could be of assistance along that way tonight, we'd be delighted to do it. If you have become a Christian, though, and maybe you at one time knew what it meant to do what God says, but maybe you've become defocused, beginning to move on a tangent in life to where... Now it's what the devil says that means more. Maybe you hadn't really thought of it that way, but ultimately that's what the case is. There's only two masters. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and following. If tonight we could be of assistance to help you rededicate your life, we'd pray to God on your behalf. You've got to confess and repent of those errors if they're known publicly. And if they're known privately, go to your heavenly Father in private beseeching His forgiveness, beseeching His aid. And if we could study with you and help you, we'd be happy to do that too. A song of encouragement has been selected. If we could be of assistance at this moment, we'd invite you to come and do so with urgency while together we stand and while we sing.